We are continuing our study this morning, like I said, through Revelation. And today what we're going to be doing is an overview of the seven letters to the seven churches that we find in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 and really look at how these letters apply to our lives today, what they meant uh, for the people who originally got them and what they mean for us now in our lives. You know, these letters, although they were indeed written to seven real churches that existed at the time in seven real historical locations, they do reveal things that are very important to the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they reveal things both good and bad about his people, his church for all time. You know, and as we go through these letters, we can't forget that this entire book is not a veiled book. It's not a hidden book, something to be set aside or impossible to understand. Revelation is meant to be understood. The word revelation literally means unveiling. So it's a truth that is unveiled to us, and it's meant to be read. It's meant to be understood, not concealed, but indeed revealed. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 19, as Jesus was speaking to John, he told him, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. We talked about in chapter 1 how the book of Revelation is primarily an unveiling of Jesus Christ, an unveiling of Jesus as God Almighty, an unveiling of Jesus and all his power and his authority and his divinity and and then through the book, his ultimate victory over all things. And those are the things that John then has seen as it starts out with this wonderful vision of Jesus Christ that John recorded for us. But in verse three of chapter one, it also tells us that Revelation is a prophecy. It is a prophecy, and if you guys are students of the Bible, you might have heard before that that prophecy is both something that is foretelling and forthtelling. Now, the forthtelling aspect of prophecy, forthtelling means that prophecy speaks about what is true. And so if you've ever had somebody speak into your life and they go, you know what, you're doing, and God is saying you should stop that, and you're like, oh, how did you know? right? That's forthtelling. That's a prophetical word. And that is the what is part of what John is writing down is Jesus said, write down what was and what is. And the forthtelling is he's going to be dealing with the church. And then foretelling is the idea of prophetical um, prophecy speaking of future events and which is what the rest of Revelation is taken about. But overall, the whole thing is God wants us to understand this book. It's a wonderful book. God wants us to get its meaning not just for facts and trivia and theological debates online, but for application and effect in our lives today. And so verse three, I just wanted to read it again in chapter one. It said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. That word blessed, it means oh, how happy. Or as a more literal rendition of the word, I like this, it means get happy. That's how it reads in the original language, right? Get happy. And you know, if you avoid the book of Revelation, you're robbing yourself of a blessing. You're robbing yourself of joy and and the peace that God wants you to have. And so the blessing, however, it, it comes from not just hearing Revelation, but keeping what is written in it, you know, and that's the challenge with, with um, biblical study. You know, many of us, many people, many even within the church, they, they read the Bible, But unfortunately, there are many who don't heed what they read. They can quote the Bible, but they just don't obey the Bible. 
And that's a challenge for us uh, all the time. You know, the Christian Bible really is a, a book of wisdom, right? Still to, the, to today, I looked it up. It is still the number one best-selling book ever, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. But looking around the world today, and, and sadly, like I said, including in the church in many ways, it doesn't look like the most obeyed book of all time. And the real blessing, the real joy comes when we decide to keep what we hear, uh, not just in the Bible as a whole, but including the book of Revelation. And keeping the book of Revelation means applying what we learn from it to our lives now, applying what we learn today, and then doing all of that in light of eternity to come. But before eternity, before the future, before what is to come is what is. What's now, the church age, the church and his people, and what Jesus has to say to his church, his people, us. Jesus has spoken, as I've said many times, and he is speaking, and he continues to speak to his church. And so today, we're gonna look at an overview, as I said, of these seven letters and how they apply to our lives today. And then next week, we will then start dealing with each one of these letters in detail, starting with the letter to the Ephesians, and then ending with the letter to Laodicea. But my prayer is today and over the next handful of weeks, as we hear what Jesus has to say to the church, that we have ears to hear what it is he is saying to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. We just, we love you so much, Lord. God, our eternity is because of you. God, you died to save our souls, Lord, and through the faith that we've put in the work that you did, God, you have granted us salvation. You've granted us the hope of heaven. You've granted us the hope of forever, Lord, and God, we're so grateful for that. But Lord, there is also the mystery that, that we are saved but still here on earth, Lord. That our soul and spirit has been, has been born again, Lord, but we still here dwell with our flesh as the book of Romans talks about, Lord. And there's this great wrestling that goes back and forth, Lord, as we strive to be people who honor you and glorify your name and yet we still wrestle with our sinful inclinations, Lord. But God, your church, you call your church, your people, your bride in your word. Lord, what a beautiful picture that is. And Lord, you love us so very much. God, that you not only save us, but that you dwell within us, Lord, to continually and constantly give us counsel and mold us and to shape us into your very image, Lord, that we would glorify your name both in our words and our actions, our behavior, and then be lights on a hill to those who don't yet know you. Lord, may we have ears to hear what it is you're saying to the churches. May we listen to what it is you're saying, and then may we obey and apply those things, Lord, to our lives that we would continue to be people who shine brightly for Jesus Christ. That this church would continue to, to shine brightly as a lampstand that is just shining the glory of you to the world. And that the church worldwide, Lord, would be that, even brighter than they are today. But Lord, we wanna start today by worshiping your holy name because God, you are just glorious. You are almighty, you are so worthy. And we wanna praise you, God, as we just come before you right now to think about who you are and set our hearts right as we're getting ready to hear from you, Lord. Some good things and some difficult, challenging things. But Lord, you chastise those you love. Lord, you discipline those you love. You correct those you love. Lord, it is out of love as our Father that you would say difficult things to us. And Lord, it's all out of love, and we thank you for it. But God, right now, be blessed, Lord. We love you so much. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
All right, we are in Revelation. And as I said, we're gonna be doing an overview of these two chapters, so we're not gonna be going verse by verse through the entire section here because we would be here a very long time if we did that. Did that. But in an overview, I wanna start by looking at verse 11 in chapter one. As Jesus appears and speaks to John, he tells him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the seven churches that the seven letters of chapters two and three are addressed to. Now, when we say letters, these uh, letters, they're really short if you actually go through them. So, you know, they might be more of a postcard note that is sent out uh, by Jesus to them. But, but, you know, I'm thinking about that. You know, if Jesus were to send you a postcard, if he was to send Hosanna a postcard, what would it say? A quick note to say, hey, you're doing this well, and hey, this is the thing I have against you that we need to work on. I think all of us immediately thought of quite a few things. <laughs> that we're like, I hope that's not in the postcard. Um, but Jesus speaks to us because he cares. He's not speaking to us that he can come and, and, and strike us down and smash us in anger. He cares about his kids, he cares about his church. And so whether he's coming in commendation or he's coming in a rebuke, it's always in love. Yep, revelation. <laughs> I love the audio reading on apps, it's, uh, I use it a lot myself. So, now, these, these letters um, that we're gonna be looking at, the, all seven of them collectively give us a really good idea uh, in, in, as I see it, a really good idea of the items and issues that are near and dear to the Lord's heart about his church and his people. You know, although these were written to seven real actual churches of the time, <clears throat> the application of what is said and taught in these letters, the praise and the rebuke is timeless. They're timeless because dealing with the activity and the behavior, or, or is, as he deals with the activity and behavior in these seven letters to these seven churches, it's activity and behavior that the church has, does, and will always continue to deal with until Jesus returns. And so the application of these letters is timeless. Now there are a few different ideas of what these letters mean and how they apply. And uh, first, as I've already mentioned a couple times, they are letters to seven actual historical churches that, that, that existed in these cities. Um, you know, you can actually go on a trip through the area. Some of the um, places that do these trips call it the footsteps of Paul trips where you can kind of go visit the ruins of Ephesus and some of these places where these churches existed. You can go online and, and, and look at pictures of, of ruins of some of these cities that still exist. And so they were seven historical churches, <clears throat> excuse me, experiencing what is being addressed in these letters. So they're real issues in real churches. And so the primary application of these seven letters is to those specific congregations and the issues they were facing at the end of the first century. So that's one way to read these letters is to understand that there were real issues. Well, when you read them that way, though, it's just like reading any of the other letters in the epistles to any other churches of the time, right? We read the letters of Corinthians, and we read the letters of Galatians, right? And those are written to real churches of the real time, but we don't read them and go, oh, well, that's not to me in my church, so therefore cast it out. No, we read it to learn what was being expressed to those churches and how it applies to us today. And it's the same with these letters in Revelation because they also speak to the church collectively from the apostolic period, 
all the way until the end. They speak to the church collectively everywhere at all times, and on top of that, they also then have direct personal application to us individually in our own lives. But as I was studying through these letters, one of the questions that popped into my head, and it's probably popped into the mind of many people, is why seven churches? Why not six churches? Why not the letters to the eight churches or the 10 churches? Well, as we talked in, uh, uh, mentioned in our last study, seven, the seven, number seven, biblically, we see that it kind of represents uh, completeness and totality in the Bible. We see it throughout scripture. We see it a lot in Revelation where you have the seven stars, the seven lampstands, the seven bowls. Um, you go in other places in scriptures, you see this number seven being representative, representative of the concept of completeness and totality. Not perfection. I don't think it, it's perfection per se, but completeness completeness and totality. And so one, you have that, that it's a seven, um, these seven letters represent a complete picture and a message to the church. On top of that, each one of these seven letters concludes with a phrase that is effectively listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And the word in the original language there, churches, is plural. And it's plural meaning all of the churches in totality, not just those seven. But these letters are saying, look, Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, all of them in totality. Now, with Revelation being prophetic, both forth-telling and foretelling, these seven letters then represent a complete or total picture of and a complete and total message to the church. Big C church, right? The church of Jesus Christ that has existed from the beginning until the end. Now, although each letter was addressed, uh, again, to a particular situation at a particular church, being representative of the church as a whole throughout history from its beginning to the end, I personally see in these letters that they address the totality of issues facing the church throughout all of church history. That's what I see in these letters in the application to the church throughout history, our church, and our lives today. So, but then that answers the question, why these seven churches? Certainly, and we know historically, other Christian churches existed at the time, right? There was the church in Jerusalem. That was a pretty prominent church, but there's no letter written to that church. There was the church in Antioch, which was another prominent church of the time. No letter written to them. There was the church in Rome at the time, which was probably the most famous church at the time of Revelation being written. Why these seven? Well, I think, again, the answer lies in the reality that prophecy is both foretelling and foretelling, and so these seven collectively represent the complete picture of all types of churches that can exist, and the type of leadership and the type of issues that they'll deal with, specifically the major challenges that affect churches being a lampstand shining the light of the gospel into the world. Now, you might ask the question, you know, but don't churches have failings and struggles and issues and challenges that aren't listed in these seven letters? Don't churches have other issues that, that aren't described or addressed by the things addressed in these seven letters? Yeah, they do. But what I see is that the root of all issues that churches can struggle with and individuals can struggle with are addressed by the seven core issues that represent a complete message of Jesus to the churches here in Revelation. And then also, any given church can experience these issues at different times, I believe. I also believe that churches can experience um, any of these issues or all seven at the same time. So it's a complete picture, it's a complete message. But not just to the church, there is also an application personally. 
Now some, when they look at the seven letters to the seven churches here in Revelation two and three, they also see that they're representative of eras of church history. The history of the church from its beginnings, right? The very first church in the first century all the way through to the end. And what's interesting is the order of the letters Um, starting with Ephesians, ending with Laodicea, and the issues that are addressed in those letters in the order that they're in, it really broadly follows church history in in an interesting way. It's not super exact, but it's a broad following of church history. And when you look at church history and you look at the seven letters of Revelation, if you put the seven letters of Revelation in any other order, they wouldn't broadly follow church history at all. It would be a complete uh, mess. And so, um, however, I do want to acknowledge that this particular view of the seven letters to the seven churches is is disputed by many because the reality is that all seven of the issues addressed um, exist in all areas uh, or all eras of church history, right? And so, but even though there's no real consensus on which, when each era of church history started and whatnot, there is historical evidence that supports Um, a predominant characteristic of the church as a whole during uh, each era of church history. And so that's kind of that application. And then lastly, but I think the most important one is the personal application of these seven letters to our lives. You know, when you read through the condition of each church and the things that Jesus has against them, you know, like, hey, these are the things you need to work on, these are the things you need to fix. When you read through that, um, you're gonna relate to one or more of the issues of the churches personally depending on where you're at in your walk, you know? And then on top of that, you know, as we study through these letters and study through the issues, you might, you know, one day feel like, oh, I feel like the Philadelphia church. And then the next day you're like, I f- gosh, today I was the Laodicean church. You know, today I was the, the Smyrna church, right? I mean, for that matter, you might go through all seven in one day. I mean, amen if you've had that day, right? Right? So, Let's, uh, let's look at the, the letters, but I want to start out by identifying some of the characteristics that all seven of them share together. All seven of the letters starts with a command to write to the angel of the church, all seven of them. Now, we discussed last time that there's, there's some dispute on what the angel of the church is. Some see um, that it's uh, an actual angel, like a, a heavenly being, because the word is translated angel. Um, some people think that it's referring to maybe the, the pastor or the, the lead teaching elder of the church because the word in the Greek simply means messenger. It doesn't specifically reference an angelic, like a heavenly being or an earthly being. It just means messenger. And so um, it could reference the, the, the lead teachers, the lead teaching elders in a church. It could represent angels. I don't know specifically, but there was a messenger that it's addressed to. All seven of the letters open up where Jesus borrows a portion of the vision of himself from chapter one, or an implication of the vision that he gave John in chapter one, and he uses a portion of the vision to introduce himself to that particular church because that portion of the vision of Jesus is something that directly addresses or has to do with resolving the problem that is addressed. And so with each church representing characteristics of and challenges that any church can face, right, the totality of the picture, each portion of the vision is applicable in addressing that particular fault, that particular situation that is addressed. All seven of the letters, Jesus then says, I know your works, right? 
Now, we do teach out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, so you'll notice that in the CSB, the letter to Smyrna and Pergamum, he doesn't say, I know your works. He says, I know your, and then he goes on to describe their circumstance. And there's a little footnote there that says, in other manuscripts, it includes, I know your works. But the point is, is that in each case, in all seven of the letters, Jesus is making an evaluation of the church, and he always begins his evaluation with, I know all about you. I know all about you. I know what you're dealing with. I know what's going on. I know both the good, I know both the bad, and it all opens up this idea that God, or Jesus Christ, as God, is the perfect one to bring a judgment, to bring evaluation, to bring correction to his church, his people, because he knows everything. Even in our own personal lives, he knows everything. He knows your thoughts, he knows your heart, he knows the circumstance, he knows what you're going through, he even knows the future that you don't know, and so when Jesus comes into our lives and says, hey, I know all about what's going on in your life, and here's some things I need to address. We never have a place to go, oh, Jesus, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. Quite the opposite. He probably knows what you're going through better than you know what you're going through. Now, all of the letters but Laodicea, interestingly enough, after he says, I know your works and your situation, um, they're followed with a commendation. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're doing good. Here's, 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 here's what I noticed that is going right about your church. But then all of the letters except Smyrna and Philadelphia, then it's followed by an accusation of sin. Interestingly enough, the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's no accusation of sin, no rebuke of any kind. There's simply an acknowledgement of a difficult situation that they're going through and an encouragement to keep doing what they're doing. All seven of the letters have an exhortation to repent or to persevere with a warning of judgment and a word of encouragement. All seven of them have an exhortation to discern the truth of what Jesus is saying, right? It ends with he who has an ear, let him hear. And then all seven end with a promise to those who are victorious or who conquer or who overcome, different words depending on the translation you use there. And so they all share these characteristics. So let's, let's look at the general issues addressed in each letter, and then I'll briefly touch on how they line up with church history as a possible prophetical outline of the church era, or as Jesus told John, writing about what is. So the first letter that starts in uh, chapter two is the letter to the church of Ephesus. Now this has been called the loveless church. The church without love, or the church that has left its first love. Now in the letter to Ephesus, Jesus opens up there and he commends them, commends them from being defenders of truth, that they defend the truth, that they've, you know, they've, they've tested those who claim to be apostles and found the ones that were liars, right? He commends them for being very um, uh, concerned about defending doctrine and the truth of God's word. He even commends them for being persecuted for that stance for truth, right? We're not gonna back down from the gospel. We're not gonna back down from what God says and he commends them from that. But in Revelation 2, 4, he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now in the New King James, it reads a little bit differently. You might be familiar with the, you have left your first love, is how it reads in some of the other translations. Um, in the Amplified Bible, it says, you have lost the depth of love that you first had for me. That's the accusation to the letter written or to the Ephesian church. You defend truth, you test the apostles, you, 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 you're persecuted for truth, you don't back down, that's great, but you have left your first love or you have lost the depth of love that you first had for me, Jesus is saying. You know, one of the challenges of the church 
in defending the truth is forgetting why we defend the truth. And instead of defending the truth for the sake of Jesus, we start defending the truth for the sake of being right. And when the church does that, we become cold. We become prideful. We could become calloused. Calloused. And if you remember Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. And so this church, the Ephesian church, they started out being about God's truth out of love for Jesus, right? Just, Jesus, we love you so much. Of course we want to stand for your truth, right? They started out um, being about God's truth for the sake of, of seeing others come to know Jesus, right? We love the lost the way Jesus does. We want to see them come to know him too. They started out that way, but then they had become being about God's truth out of, desi- out of a desire to be right, in an effort to be right about doctrine, they forgot why they have doctrine, to know Jesus, to be like Jesus, which says that he is love, and he is about loving. And we can never be a people, a church, or individuals that get so caught up in defending the truth that we forget to love. You know, some of you have used uh, phrases like, you know, and, and I used this phrase before as a Christian, you know, Christians used to like to beat me over the head with the Bible. <laughs> Right? That's a loveless defense of the truth in many ways. And so the second letter is Smyrna. Again, dealt with in chapter two, and Smyrna is referred to as the persecuted church. They're commended for facing severe persecution. Now, in this particular letter, there's no rebuke. There's no, I have this against you, right? He just acknowledges that they're, they're experiencing severe persecution, and in Revelation 2, verse 10, he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so the exhortation to the letter to Smyrna is don't give in to fear. Everybody's against you, the world's against you, the persecution is great, but don't give in to fear. He even says, look, it's gonna get worse. It's gonna get worse than it is even now, but don't give in to fear. And then when he says be faithful to the point of death, I believe what he's talking about here is also not just don't give in to fear, but don't give in to the tendency that comes with fear. The tendency that comes with fear when we're under persecution is to quit our witness. The tendency is to maybe I should stop talking about Jesus so much and the persecution will let up. Maybe I should stop fighting for Jesus so much. Maybe I should stop standing up for truth and then people will stop coming against me. Maybe I should stop saying Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And maybe I should back up and go, well, maybe there's other ways, right? That's the tendency when we're afraid, especially when it comes to being faithful to the point of death, that when we're afraid literally for our lives, for the gospel, the tendency is fear would cause us to quit our witness. And he says, just, just don't do that, hang on. The letter to Pergamum, the compromising church. You know, they're commended, it says, for holding on to Jesus' name, not denying their faith in the midst of a sinful culture, right? They're commended for that. But in Revelation 2.13, he says, um, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, Right? It's not that like you move to a bad place, right? The idea is, is I, I recognize the culture you live in. I recognize the place you live in. It's right where Satan's throne is. You, you live in the midst of a very wicked and sinful culture. And they're commended for holding on to the name of Jesus in the midst of the ungodliness going on around them. 
but then they're reprimanded for also holding, same word there he uses, holding on to teaching that said sinful behavior was not really that bad. And we'll deal with that in detail when we get to this letter, but they're, but they're reprimanded for holding to this teaching that said, you know, it's not all that bad if you sin. What had happened to this compromising church is they had begun to be tolerant of sin. They had begun to be tolerant of sinful behavior and sinful lifestyles, and they weren't really taking it seriously, and they started to compromise the belief in the stance for truth to accommodate the world around them. Thyatira is the corrupt church. They were commended for being more loving, faithful, serving, and patient than when they started out, right? He says, like, your, your last works were greater than your first. He commends them. Like, you've grown. Like, you're doing more in, in service of people, and those works are, 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 are even more, um, more mature. Like, you've grown in your walk in that sense, but then he reprimands them for tolerating those who teach false doctrine. And as we go through the letter, what we're going to see is that they saw evidence of what that false teaching led to. And instead of confronting it and dealing with it, they turned a blind eye to it, and they said nothing. And so even though he goes, you guys are, are growing and maturing in your faith, you're, you're, just, you're tolerating false teachers. You're letting them come in and, and lead the people into sinful activity, and you're not doing anything about it. And that's what he represents Thyatira for. Then we get to Sardis, which is the complacent church, or the sleeping church, as some people have called it. And he says to them, I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, I don't know necessarily if that's a commendation or more of just an acknowledgement, right? You have a reputation for being alive, but still, he points out this thing that, that in one sense is kind of positive, right? That word alive there means active and vibrant spiritually. So the fact that the Sardis church was, was recognized for having a reputation being alive, he goes, look, outwardly, you look very spiritual. Outwardly, you look like, like you're a vibrant spiritual community. But then he says, but you're actually dead. And that word dead means spiritually lifeless. Or to be more specific, it's to be so morally and sp- spiritually deficient that you are in effect spiritually dead. Now, the letter to the Sardis church, it could be referencing um, those in the church that are just in the church, playing church. They're just playing church and doing churchy things. And they look churchy. And when people hear that, that church or those people speak, they go, wow, you must be a spiritual person. And wow, you do spiritual things. And oh my, how big is the Bible you carry? That's impressive. That's a really neat cross necklace you're wearing or, you know, but in this letter, he's going, look, you, you, you have this outward appearance of being spiritually vibrant, but I know you're really spiritually dead, or at least you're so morally deficient you appear to be spiritually dead. So those that are playing church but maybe don't actually know the Lord, they're not looking for his return. They're not expecting his return. They're not living in a way of saying, God, you can come back right now. They're just kind of going about their life. And the idea is that they really don't care that their manner of living doesn't match their profession of faith. Much like the Pharisees, right? Where Jesus said, look, you're outwardly spiritual, but inwardly you're whitewashed tombs. The letter to Philadelphia. That's known as the faithful church. Again, a letter where there's a a commendation, right? You guys are doing this great, but no reprimand. 
Nothing bad to say about them. He commends them for being faithful to Jesus, faithful to his word, his truth, and, and their testimony and their witness for him. He commends them for being faithful to that. And then, like I said, no reprimand, no rebuke, just a promise. A promise that those who claim to be God's people, but who are not, and the implication there is that people are pointing to the Philadelphian church and going, you're not the real church, we're the real church. God says, they're gonna bow at your feet and know that I have loved you. So they're promised that those who claim that, that God's gonna deal with them. God's gonna deal with them. And then there's a call to the Philadelphian church to confidently walk through the open doors that Jesus has set before them. It's like, look, I get it. It, it, it's tough. There's some persecution going on even in this church, but look, you're, you're so faithful to me in my word, and so just, just don't, be, don't, don't worry about what people around you are saying. Look, just follow me and walk through the doors that I'm opening in front of you. And then he closes with the Laodicean church, which is the lukewarm church. The one with the famous verse where he goes, look, you're lukewarm, I'd rather you be hot and cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth, right? Wow, intense. Now this is the one where there's nothing good to say. No commendation of any kind, just a regretful acknowledgement and rebuke that they're lukewarm. And it's interesting, this church, unlike Smyrna, which is the persecuted church, to that church he goes, look, I know your poverty, which is referring to their material poverty, like you don't have a lot of resources, but you are rich spiritually. That's what he said to the Smyrna church. This one, he goes, you brag about your riches. You brag about your wealth. You brag about you, what you have. You're like, well, we have everything and we're in need of nothing. And he says, but you're actually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What he's saying to the Laodicean church is your hope, your trust, your pride is in yourself. Your hope, your trust, and your pride is in, in what you accomplish by your own power, what you accomplish by your own efforts. You're wrapped up in yourselves and you're so self-focused that in the letter to the Laodiceans, Jesus says, I'm not even in the church. I'm standing outside knocking at the door just going, will someone let me in? Like, I'm not even in this church. He's just standing there hoping that someone would invite him in. And so that's an overview of what the issues are that the letters are addressing. And it's really interesting, but regarding the, the church history eras, um, Again, this is a generalized characterization of each era of church history. And also remember that all seven of these issues exist in the church at all times, right? But what's interesting is if you look at the, the history of the church, what you see is these characteristics. Follow me here in Ephesians, the first letter to the Ephesians, chapter two, verses one through seven. You have the church of the apostolic age, right? The church that started in the book of Acts and that grew through that first century. This church was born with a great zeal and love for Jesus and a love for one another. And, and this love just like drove them to go spread the gospel and to labor to see that others would come to know Jesus, right? It was a wonderful time. But historically, if you go look, you'll see that this era kind of came to a close with a departure from that love-driven focus as, a defense for, uh, as, a, as the defense for truth kind of became the priority of the church. And, and there was valid reason for that, right? You had Gnostics trying to infiltrate the church. You had people trying to bring in false stuff. But what happened is this defense of truth came to crowd out love. And historically, when you look at the historical church, you see that aspect there. Not that defending truth is bad, but as I said, when it lacks love, it can be overly proud and overly judgmental. 
And then after the apostolic age, loosely, the next age that we see in church history would be in correspondence with the letter to Smyrna, the second letter, chapter two, verses eight through 11, which is the church under intense persecution. People call it the martyr period, right? This kind of started in the middle of the first century where the Roman persecution of the church started growing and you had Caesar Nero throwing Christians into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions and and just the, the, the persecution from everywhere on the church just grew and grew and grew and it was a very intense time for the church that had just recently been birthed. And it was an intense time of persecution that continued all the way up until Emperor Constantine declared the empire to be Christian. And that was the Smyrna period, if you will. What followed the Smyrna period would be what we see in the letter to the church of Pergamos, chapter two, verses 12 through 17, which would be loosely looked at as the church age of compromise. And remember, the Pergamos church is the compromising church. But it was in this age of church history we see a decreasing spirituality and increasing worldliness that kind of gripped the church as a whole. Since the church was elevated and had been joined to the government, if you will, right? The emperor, the greatest, most powerful governmental leader of the world said, we are all Christian. It is the religion of the empire now. Because that happened, there was a time period where many joined the church just because that's what you did. It it wasn't because they necessarily, and uh, these are generalizations, please understand that. But people would join the church because that's what you did, not necessarily because they knew Jesus. It was a time period where being Christian became cultural rather than personal. And thus, in the culture, there was a lot of pagan practices that were brought into Christians. Like, it would be like today, you know, if if someone equated, um, you know, your national identity with your faith which incidentally is kind of uh, what happens a lot in Islam. There's a lot of Muslims that that are like, I'm Muslim culturally, right? I'm just, I'm born and raised that way. It's my culture, it's my national identity, not necessarily all times my faith and my religion. And so it would be like, like, you know, confusing I'm a Christian with I'm an American, right? Of course I'm Christian because I live in this country. That's the idea here. Now what's interesting is during this period of compromise, you had teachings that were introduced into the church such as the worship of saints, which was introduced by the church in 375 AD, which is complete idolatry. God is the only one to be worshiped, but, but this, no, we're gonna worship the saints and all the, you know, the apostles that were raised up to be saints and Saint Mary, we're gonna start worshiping them. And the other thing that was introduced during this period in 593 AD was purgatory. Purgatory was this idea that, you know, you could keep living sinfully and live however you want today because, you know, you'll just end up in a holding cell and then, you know, there you can, you know, kind of earn your way into heaven. Compromise. The next era of church history, which is parroted by the letter of Thyatira, is the church age of corruption. Now, during these periods, the church, when I say the church, um, I'm predominantly referring to what would be called the Catholic Church of the time. That was kind of the church, right, at the time. And and during the Thyatira age or the church age of corruption, as power was consolidated by the leaders of the church as corruption set in, the church started to introduce stuff outside of Christ alone for salvation. They started to introduce other things. Well, you could do this and you could do this. And that teaching became normalized and institutionalized in the church during this time. An example of that is in 1190 AD, the church introduced the sale of indulgences. And this practice was where the church said, we want money. (laughs) 
So they went out and told the people, if you give us one third of your yearly income, we will give you a certificate that says all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Pretty corrupt. What was the result of that? Sinful living, immorality, ungodliness, because I'm just, just give them some money, you know, I'm good. And then the next age that came after that was the church age of complacency, which we see in the letter to Sardis. The church existed, but was spiritually lifeless in that sense. Much of the church had become state-sponsored and continued to be state-sponsored, um, going through the motions, even, um, even during the Reformation, which took place during this age of church complacency, where Martin Luther was like, look, the Pope, <laughs> the church doesn't have universal authority. The Word of God has universal authority, right? And you know the whole story where he nailed his theses to the church door and started the Lutheran church. But during this age, the Lutheran church then became the state church of Germany. So it was still a... a, a, a um, a commingling of that there. But there was a complacency where people just were just, ah, I just go to church to go to church. But there was no spiritual vibrancy. And so, as he said to Sardis, you know, you, you look vibrant, but you're dead. And then you have the church age of faithfulness, which would be the Philadelphian church from chapter three, verses seven through 13. Again, these overlap in many ways. There's no hard and fast, you know, different people have different ideas of this era ended here and started here, but some people say the Philadelphia age started around 1750 because the reformation that took place led to a return to the word of God as authority. That also led to a renewed evangelistic spirit within the church. During this age of brotherly love is what Philadelphia means. Missions became like just huge and missionaries went out all over the world. And it was during this time where, where the gospel was taken to places it had never been before as an outward focus on the church uh, or the inward focus of the church shifted outward, right? What did God say to the Philadelphian church? Step to the doors I open before you confidently. And so the gospel was taken to, you know, we read all these stories about missionaries during this time period that went to places that were very difficult and deadly and they took the gospel there. And then you have the Laodicean age, which would be the church age of lukewarmness. And if you ascribe to the concept of church ages, this would be the modern church. The church that says we got so many resources, we're so rich, look at how big our building is, look at how fancy our production is, Look at this and that, and they just brag about all that, and Jesus says, but you're poor. You're poor. Just because you have huge facilities and impressive production, that doesn't mean you're spiritual. That doesn't mean that you're vibrant for Jesus. Then the idea is that the church of the modern age in a generalization is not really on fire for Jesus so much as that they're on fire for church. Come to our church. Be in our thing. And preaching and teaching is, is characteristic where it's more about motivational speaking and prosperity than it is about Jesus and biblical thinking. We don't see none of that today, do we? Now again, this isn't blanket statement of every church is like this, but when you look through the eras of church history, you kind of see these. Now if you shifted these letters, it wouldn't line up. So it's very interesting to, to look at it this way. It's a picture of what is, um, things as they presently are in the church age, and then after this begins in chapter four of Revelation as he starts to talk about the tribulation period. Now, my final thought on this overview um, is to look at that idea that during the tribulation in Revelation, the church is no longer present. You see, what's interesting is chapters one, two, and three 
We've seen the church referenced over and over and over again. Chapters two and three specifically, letter to the church, right? Each individual church, and he goes, let the, what the Spirit is saying be heard by the churches, right? And so there's all these ideas that, that God is, is, is focused on a revelation to his church and speaking to his churches, and you actually see the word church several times. But as of chapter four, the word church does not appear again in the book of Revelation all the way until chapter 22, verse 16, after the judgment is done, after the time of, of trial and testing is all done, and I call that a hint, I call that a hint. Because again, in chapter four on, John starts to write about the things that will take place after this, right? John, write what you've seen, write what is the church age, write what will take place after this, or after the church age. And that's the age where God's people, his church, are here on earth, filled with the Holy Spirit, laboring to serve him, dealing with their sin and their issues. But when he goes on to deal with the judgment of the earth, it's after he's dealt with the correction of his church. Now, the last thing to notice about these letters and their placement as we go through them is, is that there is a message of great hope for the church today, a message of great, incredible hope. And that's really what I want you guys to walk away from today, right? You know, you read through chapters two and three, and I encourage you to do that on your own throughout the week and as we're going through these letters over the next several weeks, but you can't help but to notice that although there's a lot of good commended in the churches, there's also a lot of stuff that's really messed up, Right? They're tolerating sin, they're tolerating false teachers, they're, they're, they're lukewarm, all this stuff, you know? And then the truth is, is in this creation, which, which is called the old creation, right? Um, in the big picture of Revelation, you have the church, which is us, God's temple, the place of res- residence for the Holy Spirit. It's imperfect. It's in flawed. It's flawed. Do any of you feel imperfect and flawed when it comes to your walk as a Christian? You should, because we are imperfect. We're flawed in this period of time. But when you contrast chapters two and three, which is now, the church age, what is, with chapters 21 and 22, which is the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, when you contrast the two, um, it's just a really beautiful picture of hope for the church. Because you contrast the now of the church, chapters two and three, and the church is his bride according to Ephesians 5, you contrast that with Revelation 21.9 where an angel shows up and he says to John, I will now show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he goes on to show you the holy city. And this is what we see. In chapter two, verse two, Ephesus. There's the presence of false, false apostles present in the church. And he commands Ephesus, look, you've called them out. You've, you've, you've identified them in a liar, but they're still here. There's false apostles among the church, people who claim to be the authority of God, and they're false. In Revelation 21, 14, it says the foundation of the holy city has the names of the 12 true apostles. In chapter 2, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 9, with Smyrna and Philadelphia, you have the presence of false Jews that is addressed. People who say, we are God's chosen special people, right? But instead of the false Jews present in the church today, in Revelation 21, 12, it tells us that the gates of the holy city have the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed upon them. Those who are really God's people, right? Not the false Jews, but the true Jews are now what's present. Chapter two, verse 13 in Pergamum, he talks about the Christians living where Satan's throne is and the difficulty of that among a godless and wicked culture. In Revelation 22.1, we see a picture of Christians then living where the throne of God is in his perfect presence. Chapter three, verse one, the letter to Sardis, we see that, that there's some present in the church who are spiritually dead. 
But when you contrast that to Revelation 21, 27, instead of there being people in the church who actually don't know Jesus at all, Revelation 21, 27 tells us that every single person in the holy city has their name written in the book of life. No fakes in the holy city. In chapter two, verse five, you have a faltering church as he writes to Ephesians and he says, look, your lampstand will be removed if you don't get this in order. Your witness, you know, that, that as the church, we are the ones who, who display the light of God to the world, right? But in Revelation 21, 23, and 22, five, it says that light doesn't need to be displayed or reflected anymore because God himself, the light, is present. Then in the letter to Pergamum and Thyatira, we have a church that's full of idolatrous impurities and liars. Revelation 21.8, none of that is present. It says none of that will even be allowed within the presence of God and into his holy city. And then to Smyrna, instead of Christians facing persecution and suffering in hope of God's promises, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see in the new creation, Christians reigning, having fully inherited all the promises of God. It's just a beautiful contrast of what is and what is to come for the church. In between those things, judgment on the world. You know, the hope of heaven, the hope of salvation, the hope of restoration, the hope of newness, I so look forward to that, right? I can't wait for the time where where the temptation of sin is gone. But that's not yet, that's not yet. The fulfillment of that is not yet. I still dwell here, we still dwell here as the church imperfect, flawed, born again, but with our sin nature still with us. And we're called in that process to choose to obey God over and over and over again, especially when God says, I have this against you, church. This is where you're not being obedient to my word. This is where you're not being obedient to me. This is where you're not standing for my truth or dealing with those who preach false truth and and engage in leading people astray. This is what I have against you, deal with it. And here and today, while we're still in our flawed existence, we're called to say, God, I choose you. I choose obedience. I choose to follow you. Now there's a hope that one day it's just, it's gonna be perfect. The sin nature is gonna be gone. The temptation will be gone. No false teachers there, no impurities there, none of that. But today, hope is here. Hope has arrived. Hope is working in his church today, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is among his church today, as we saw in Revelation 1, among the lampstands, working to mold us and to shape us and to shine through us, all so that others may come to know the hope that is in Jesus as well. Ultimately, yeah, he's preparing us for glory, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet, and so we have an obligation to read and to hear what it is he's saying to the churches and apply these things to our lives that we would shine bright for him and continue to shine bright for him. So there's lots to look at. There's lots of serious introspection into our own lives we'll be dealing with in the next seven weeks, but it's all for the purpose of purification and healing and growth and maturity and patience. All those so that we would shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ in an ever-darkening world. That when the world would look at us, his church, they would see nothing else but the glorious vision of Jesus Christ, God Almighty. 
And that's what these letters are about for us. And so as we study through these letters over the next seven weeks, yeah, we're going to learn some cool stuff. Yeah, we're going to deal with some, you know, interpretive type of things, you know. Um, I'll, I'll just give you forewarning. There's a lot of stuff where I'm like, it could be this, it could be this, I don't know. And if you're not good with that type of answer, I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, I'm going to take a hard line where I really believe the Lord's given me a hard line and stuff that maybe is interpretive and I'm not sure I'm going to be honest with that. But the point is, is as we learn these letters um, and we learn this cool stuff, don't miss the personal application. The personal application as Jesus is evaluating his church. He is looking at you, he is looking at me, and we should be asking ourselves these questions. Ephesus, have I lost my original love and zeal for Jesus? Have I replaced that with a dogmatic coldness and pride about being true and right? Smyrna, am I afraid of suffering for Jesus? Am I willing to even die for him if I was called to do that? Pergamum, am I compromising my walk? Is my Christianity merely cultural rather than personal and life affecting? Am I living a life separated from worldliness or am I compromising in my faith? Thyatira, am I corrupting the gospel Am I fully trusting in the finished work of Christ alone for salvation or am I living a life where I'm trying to earn my salvation through different types of works and then using those works to justify my corruption? What do I mean by that? There's many in the church today that say, you know, I know God doesn't want me to to be engaging in this sin, but I'm gonna continue engaging that sin because after all, I went to church twice this week. Sardis, does my spiritual walk have the life and vibrancy and enthusiasm of Jesus Christ or am I spiritually dead and just going through the motions of church and Christianity? Philadelphia, am I being faithful to Jesus? Am I walking through the open doors he's put in front of me? Even though it might be intimidating and difficult, am I walking through those doors confidently and being faithful to his name and his calling on my life? And then Laodicea, am I red hot for Christ or am I content to live a lukewarm life? Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to his church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. For your word, Lord, it's a lot of material to cover, God, and and Lord, I pray, God, that today as we've looked at this overview of the issues, that we would begin this study of these seven letters, Lord, with a complete picture, a total picture of what it is you're speaking to the church, Lord. And that, God, as we evaluated what each of these things mean, both for those churches at the time, possibly through church history and all churches of all time, representing church ages of history, Lord. God, most importantly, what does it mean to my life today and who I am as a Christian living for Jesus Christ? Lord, may we look at the big picture of these seven letters, Lord, and be able to evaluate ourselves, Lord, as you are evaluating us. That we would be people who shine the light brightly, Lord, and don't risk having our lampstand removed, Lord, but that our witness would be powerful and bold and complete. That, Lord, we wouldn't be compromising or corrupt or, or, or just weak, Lord, in, in, in waffling back and forth, Lord, in our faith and justifying disobedience because maybe we were obedient a week ago. But, Lord, are we people who, God, just fall at your feet, yield our lives to you in every way, and ask that you would just work in and through us to glorify your holy name 
God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that we would continue to be blessed, that we would get happy as we read the words of this prophecy, and that we would hear it, that we would keep it, that we would be people who walk forward in light of eternity with the hope that is in Jesus Christ, and that we would be a church that shines that light brightly to the world around us, that those who don't yet know you would come to know you. God, we love you. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.